0: Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 102. The South Africans were attacking FAPLA's 59 Brigade but had run into an ambush. Cubans operating Soviet tanks had laid up waiting for foresight to cut across their held-down positions. These were the T-55s of the 3rd Battalion. The commanders and the gunners were Cuban while the drivers were Angolan. As the SEDF had found out earlier on the 14th of February, 1988, Valentine's Day, the Cubans were also operating as spotters. Mike Muller of 61 Mech was now trying to capture a Cuban, but the last he'd seen had been shot down right in front of him while trying to surrender by UNITO troops, whose blood was up. When we left off last, it was the afternoon, and the SEDF had just won a victory over 59 Brigade and 3rd Battalion. The Angolans and the Cuban allies were in full retreat towards the Tumpo Triangle, that Y-junction in the road east of Quito Guanabali and just north of the Tumpo River. This retreat was a rout in many ways, with FAPLA officers only managing to halt the retreating 59th Brigade northeast of Quito Kuanabali. 21 and 25 brigades were also pulling back, along with the third tank battalion. They left behind 14 destroyed T-55s, eight armored cars burnt out, one BM-21 Stalin organ, one mobile radar-guarded SAM-13 missile system, and seven ZU-23 anti-aircraft guns seized. 400 Fopler were dead, hundreds more injured, so far on the battle on Valentine's Day. 61 Mech had lost four men dead, around a dozen wounded, three seriously. Now that 59 had been overrun, Forsai under Kasi Skuman, turned north, heading towards 61 Mech's support as they continued to engage with Fopler's 25 Brigade, a retreating 3rd Tank Battalion, and 59 Brigade's rearguard. The skies were now clear, which was bad news for the SADF. Thousands of tons of bombs were dropped by the MiGs, and eventually the South African's luck ran out. One of these landed directly on a group of sign National Servicemen, killing four. And yet Mike Muller was upbeat. He'd seen action since the first Angolan invasion by the SADF in 1975, Operation Savannah, He was now 35 years old and had been fighting non-stop for 12 years. This was one of the more significant defeats he'd seen FAPLA take in all the years of fighting. However, optimism was tempered by reality. The MPLA government in Angola could call on 30 advanced MiG-23 fighters, 8 Sukhoi Su-22 fighter bombers, 50 MiG-21s, as well as 16 out-of-date MiG-17 fighters, 33 Mi-24 Hind helicopter gunships, 27 Alouette assault choppers, 69 Mi-8 and Mi-17 transport helicopters, and Firefly also had more than 350 T-54 55 tanks left, along with 150 T-34s and 50 PT-76 amphibious light tanks. The USSR had also agreed to send five giant Antonov-22 transport planes to Angola, By 1985, Russia had already sent $5 billion worth of military equipment into the African country. Watching from their position close to the Tumpo Triangle were elements of the Rekis led by Sean Mullen. He reported the MiGs bombing everything to the east. Dust and smoke hung in the air. Meanwhile, what was called a sideshow had been underway far to the northwest of this battleground. To coincide with a big attack by Forsyth and 61 Mech against 59 Brigade on Sunday, 14th of February, 1988, Dion Ferreira wanted 3-2 Battalion to strike the Monong Air Base. This was to hamper the Angolans as they had dispatched their attack helicopters and ground support MiGs, and the plans for this had been underway since the 6th of February. It may have been a sideshow, but it was extremely daring, a one-off event in the entire border war in terms of its conventional-style plan. The idea was to launch from a small stream called the Kuma, which was 20 kilometers southeast of Minong. Commandant Robbie Hartzleff moved into position with 65 vehicles, including 16 10-ton trucks carrying mobile rocket launcher and mortar ammunition, Yakal trucks loaded with 120 millimeter mortars, an entire Rattle 90 squadron, a command rattle, and other logistics and support vehicles. They moved at night without lights, unseen by the Angolans, and through heavy rain. They moved blind. Using instruments, the night was pitch black. Every kilometre they halted to count the trucks and the rattles, making sure no one was left behind. Every river was an event. They could not use the roads, so they had to build fords out of logs and rocks. Some of the vehicles became bogged down. They were winched out. It took this group of attackers four days to reach the Kuma River, undetected. They had to pass through farms on the way, and enemy reconnaissance patrols were scouting around, but still they made it through without raising the alarm. Ten kilometres north of the Kuma River, they spotted an enemy tank squadron, while there were also heavy enemy movements along the road south of Minong. So, by the evening of the 13th of February, Hotslief's 3-2 battalion was in place, and Major Pierre Franken took command of the artillery barrage. After all the dragging and the driving, he realized that the target was too far away for the 120mm mortars, so he relied on the four Valkyrie MRLs instead. It was 10.30pm and these began to fire on Menong Airfield. A ripple of 96 rockets plunged into that base, with the Reckies feeding him bearings. They waited for a response. There was none. So they set about reloading the MRLs. Each missile weighs 60 kilograms. It's not easy loading the Valkyries in the darkness, then popping in the charge packs for firing. Everyone was groping around, sightless, followed by the eye-singing brightness of the MRLs screaming into the dark, destroying what little night vision you've established. The second ripple of 96 missiles went off at 1.30am on Valentine's Day. Then the South Africans scurried off towards Gimbe, to the south, only stopping at 5.30 when the dawn sky began to brighten. By 6.45, they'd pulled camouflage over their trucks and the rifles, then hunkered down. A few minutes later, the first MiGs flew over, heading towards Quito Quanavali. The men thought these were from Lubungo, far to the northwest, but they were wrong. While most of their missiles had hit the base, they'd caused very little damage. Seven Cubans had been killed, along with 37 Angolan Air Force staff, but only one MiG-21 had been slightly damaged. By midday of the 14th of February, the MiGs were taking off again from Minong Airfield. By not being able to bring their much more deadly 120mm mortars into action, the South Africans had missed the trick. We fell far short of what we had hoped to achieve, Robbie Hotsleaf said later. The battalion was stuck here for the rest of February, with the MiGs flying all over the place, looking for them. Then one morning there was a concerted effort. Two MiG-23s flew top cover as six MiG-21s screamed in low from the south, aiming at three twos positions, pouring streams of 30mm cannon into the trees, peppering the trenches that the South Africans had dug. They knew we were there somewhere, but they didn't know exactly where, said Hotslip to author Fred Bridgeland. These were complex manoeuvres by the Angolan Air Force, and the men on the ground knew that they were pretty sure of their target. We were all deep in our foxholes, said Captain Herman Mulder of 3 Battalion later. I was scared shitless. I thought we were going to be cut to pieces. But none were hit. The 30mm cannon destroyed the trees and the bush around, but missed all the vehicles, and the men of 3-2, along with their allies from UNITA, who were lying alongside, about a kilometre away, were fine." The pounding was causing the Pretoria top brass some concern, however, they couldn't allow the Angolan Air Force free rein. So on Friday, the 19th of February, four Mirage F 1AZs took off from Khrufontein in northern southwest Africa. Their target was a Fabla convoy expected to pass through a Quartier, 40 kilometers east of Menon. The last plane out that day was flown by Major Ed Every, known to all at the base as Never Ready. Because he often forgot things like his gloves, maps, or flight documents, but on this day he forgot nothing. The other pilots were Norman Minna, Franz Kutscher, and Trombinel. They were armed with sticks of pre-fragmented airburst bombs, and over the previous six days, a number of other sorties had already been flown in the same area. The four headed at low level towards the target, and as usual, the first three tossed their bombs using the technique I explained previously, soaring upwards from low level a few kilometers from the target, releasing the bomb, then dipping down and flying away at high speed. Minna and Every broke out to the left, while the other pair went to the right of the target. Minna heard Every shout, break left, which Minna did. Then he heard Rompinel shout, eject, eject. Rekkies were watching this attack when suddenly they saw black smoke pouring from the mirage just as it reached its pitch-up position. Then it rolled and disappeared. This mirage had been downed by one of FAPLA's guns or a missile from nearby at Gimbe. 3-2 battalion troops saw the huge black pall of smoke and knew that every had hit the deck. It was about 20 kilometers south of the main road, just west of the Quartier River. There'd be no sign of an ejection, although UNITA observers said later they thought they'd seen a parachute. The Requis did not. They knew that Every had died in the plane. The other SA Air Force pilots had seen the Mirage on the ground, totally broken up. There were no emergency calls, no sign of the Palba beacon. This was Every's second tour of duty. He was 31 years old. In a cruel twist, during the seven-month deployment, squadron personnel were continually rotated to allow for rest and recreation back at Hootspreit but Ed Every had volunteered to stay at Gryffontaine over this period. He'd been shot down the very next weekend. SA Air Force pilots were in greater danger now because the war had entered a static phase. The enemy had studied their tactics. They had moved the anti-aircraft batteries closer to where the mirages would pitch up, and after release, the missile system had locked onto the aircraft's exhaust plume. The Rekis were eyeing the crash site. They knew that every would be carrying maps of 3-2 battalion's positions. Should Fapla find these, then the next bombing runs by the MiGs would be even more accurate. And the Rekis jogged off to try and reach the burned-out Mirage before Fapla. The Angolans were also on the move towards the site. It was a race. An immense search and rescue operation was launched, with Captain Dave Stock flying a Telstar mission, listening for any possible radio transmissions. A C 160 scoured the region with parabats on board, who'd be parachuted in if they heard anything, but it was clear every had not survived. By nightfall, an entire battalion of Cuban soldiers was at the crash site. The tanks and vehicles parked close by, they were walking around with lamps and torches, trying to find anything of value. That was not a very clever thing to do. The Reckies were watching and called in a ripple of 96. MRLs, which exploded directly over the mirage. Dozens of Cubans and Angolan soldiers died. The South Africans felt they had some sort of revenge for every, but they'd lost not only a valuable pilot, but one of the very few mirages. And in a few days, they were going to lose another. It was a shocked airbase at Grootfontein that counted the cost. Only three mirages returned. Fappler responded immediately, Realising that the SA Air Force was trying to protect 3-2 Battalion lurking somewhere south of the Minong-Kuita-Kwanawali Road, they pushed an entire infantry brigade with tanks and their heavy M46 guns into the bush right there, trying to flush out the battalion. Things were heating up, not just the temperature, and Rundu HQ told 3-2 Battalion to withdraw in a series of night hops. The battalion was smarting after the downing of the Mirage and on the way south they sent a group of 45 vehicles east to bomb a battalion of Fapla Infantry based at the town of Baishalonga on the Longa River. It was hit by 96 MRLs and 351 120mm mortar shells. Nothing, however, could replace their critically limited Mirage and pilot. The frustration was growing. Here was a highly mobile battalion flitting about in the bush when they should really be attacking Quito Guanavali thought Hotsliff and other commanders. Concentrate the forces, strike their logistic centres, surround the town, sow chaos, morale would collapse. They'd panic if they realised that the South Africans had surrounded them. But Pretoria was wary of the cost of such a significant action. Here was the tension again between the political deployees back in Pretoria and the soldiers who sensed they only had a few weeks left to do anything of real value. Slugging it out in the trenches had cramped their style and with the Russians sending vast quantities of material into southern Africa, the prognosis for Pretoria was not good. Furthermore, the rules of engagement meant Forsyth and 61 mech were not allowed north or west of Quito Kwanavadi. And still, FAPLA's supplies rolled in, hundreds and hundreds of tons a day, ammunition, food, reinforcements. The Rekis worked hard to try and stem the tide. Teams under leaders like Johnny Decavea, Julian Marcella, and Ian Castellane were deployed in the direction of Longa from where they would monitor the logistics convoys. Further up the road, closer to Menong, were Sergeant Bux van der Bach and Corporal Bez Besaidnacht. Both sets of teams had used Ram B illumination flares. They would track a convoy until the vehicles halted for the night in the late afternoon. Then they'd creep up to the most forward and rear vehicles, plant these flares in the ground, then withdraw. The team leaders would radio that the flares were on the ground and ready, and Rundu HQ would be informed. The Mirages would fire back up in Grootfontein, swooping in for the attack at first or last light as the Rekis fired up the flares. Each of these convoys were up to six kilometers long. In one attack, the Mirages returned three times, destroying two dozen vehicles and two tanks. Unita would then grab as much gear as they could, and everyone would disappear back into the bush. Eventually, more than 400 vehicles and tanks were smoking ruins on the side of this all-important road, but still on they came, trundling along, bringing the material that FAPLA needed to continue their battles against the SADF. By now, the Angolan 25 Brigade was earmarked for special South African attention. The Rekis were in place, acting as intelligence gatherers and spotters, deployed at the Tumpo Triangle. First, though, the SADF had to deal with a hard point designated as 1251. 21 Brigade companies were based here and would be a threat when the upcoming push against Tumpo Triangle began. They had to be dislodged. It was up to Commandant Mike Muller and 61 mech. He put together a special unit, including an Ulifant Squadron, one Rattle Squadron, and a battalion of Unita troops, along with a mortar section. They moved into their starting position six kilometers east of one of Fapla's 21st Brigade battalions, which were being protected, apparently about three T-55s. It was before dawn on the 20th of February when the special attack force moved off, with Unita leading the way. Soon the Rattles entered a minefield and one had its front axle blown off. Then the MiG-23s appeared and the Rattles and Ulifants headed for cover. As they tried to move out, the MiGs returned, then an Ulifant hit a mine and had to be repaired. These minefields were laid out according to Russian doctrine, forcing the attackers into squeeze points, a killing zone for Fabler's artillery. The SADF was determined to push through these directly rather than fall prey to the Angolan plans, but this meant more vehicles would be damaged. All the while, the Angolans fired the M46s and mortars, then their Stalin-Organ multiple rockets. A number of Unita troops riding on the Oliphants were killed or wounded, but the SADF attacked ground onward. At 4pm, they approached Harpoint 1251 and were within a kilometre of the first Fapla trenches when the Angolans began to bolt across the Dala and Kuanavali rivers. Ricky's and Muller's spotters called in the G5s, which shelled the open Anhana, downing some of the fleeing enemy. The South Africans then overran the battalion's trenches, only to find that the tanks and other vehicles had already pulled back. Muller headed towards the north bank of the Dala River, and the Ulifans spotted a mortar position further south. They dropped shells on the enemy there. So the high point had been taken. 61 mech's force, along with Unita, pulled back east of the Chambinga high ground but now they were spotted by the Angolan artillery forward teams who called in a bombardment of the M46 guns. Then the MiG-23s returned, dropping bombs within 50 meters of the tanks and the rifles. No one was hit, but the incessant air attacks were wearing the troops down. As Clive Holt of 61 Mech said in his book At Thy Call, it was like a raffle, where there were only 100 tickets and no date for the draw. Someone's name was going to come up, but no one knew who it would be or when. The only thing we knew for certain was that we were all ticket holders, he said. They spent the next few days fixing broken vehicles, cleaning their weapons, refueling, reloading ammunition. This time, 61 mech was going to be the main assault force and the troops felt that this would be the mother of all battles. All remaining FAPLA forces had gathered in a confined area, the Tumpo Triangle, just in front of the Quito Bridge and they had been digging in for weeks. As long as Fapla held this bridge, they held the key to the entire southeastern Angolan region. The Angolans had been systematically clearing away bush along their front, increasing the kill zone, calibrating the distances for their artillery. This was like the western front, machine gun emplacements, accurate distances mapped out by artillery commanders, extremely heavy shells lined up, ready to go. And had also pulled their damaged tanks into fortified strongpoints, hull down their guns and added danger, turrets and barrels jutting out of these holes, ready to open up on the SED of crossing the open ground. The Angolans then began to work on the South African psyche. As 61 mech men and machines waited for their next attack, a truly bizarre and chilling incident took place. The official records do not speak much of this, with UNITA troops close by, there was an opportunity for a vicious booby trap. One morning, a man who said he was from UNITA approached, asking for help. He wanted his water bottle filled. Lance Corporal Price of 61 Mech obliged, taking the water bottle from the man and going off to fill it up. Moments later, the bottle exploded. It had been booby-trapped with a hand grenade. Price was killed The so-called Unita soldier disappeared into the nearby bush, then Commandant Buller radioed all men to apprehend the Unita soldiers in their vicinity. A few were stopped, but it became clear that the Fapla saboteur had managed to get away. A bitterness swept over the units. They had been stuck here for three months, and the raffle ticket analogy was firmly wedged in their minds. And the MiGs bombed daily. Slowly, their accuracy improved. The troops then took to digging their foxholes down at least two metres, covering these with thick logs, tarpaulin, and sand to stop the airburst shrapnel. They stank. They had not washed in weeks. They felt like animals. Across, in the Tumpo Triangle, the SADF's enemies were building stronger defences. Two lines of intricate infantry trenches and sandbag bunkers running north-south between the source of the Dala and Tumpo rivers. After breaking the first line, the South Africans would have to break the second. Anti-tank and anti-personnel minefields were laid out front, for Foppler's snipers and machine gunners, there was an almost treeless flatland of the Amhara Lepanda ahead, and where the flatland had forest, this forest had been cut down. M46 and D30 guns were set up, along with BM21 Stalin organs, all on the west bank of the Quito River, behind these two lines of troops, and now Foppler's artillery was on equal terms with the SDF's G5s. Everything was within range should 61 Mech come charging over the flatland. It makes you wonder at the courage of these troops, bludgeoned by now and yet ready to go once more. They were going to drive straight into this death zone, hopefully push Fapla and the Cubans out, then let Junita take over the abandoned positions. Mike Muller's 61 Mech was going to plunge into this murderous flatland, but first the generals and political leadership back home needed to sign off on the plan. What option did they have? Retreat was not an option, but direct assault was suicide. Army Chief Kat Liebenbach duly passed the plan to Defence Minister Magnus Malin, who passed the plan to his cabinet. We'll hear next episode what this plan entailed and what was decided for this major assault. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps raise the visibility of the series. If you want to contact me, you can head off to abwarpodcast.com. There's a contact form on the homepage. Or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, first page.